0: Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Christian Wadig. Christian is an energetic, enthusiastic FP&A leader with 12 plus years of experience at multinational consumer goods companies and fast-growing tech startups. As an entrepreneur, he teaches FP&A skills to finance teams and business leaders via his live online course, FP&A Bootcamp. He's also the head of training at DataRails. Christian discovered his passion for teaching when he led the finance learning and development team at Unilever, creating finance courses for his colleagues. He earned his MBA at NYU Stern School of Business and lives in New York City. Hello, Christian, and thank you for being on today's episode. Thanks so
1: much for having me, Megan.
0: Yeah, I'm excited about this one. Today we'll be learning about you, of course, but we'll also be hearing about the importance of financial storytelling and business partnering in the practice of FP&A and why these skills can be so elusive. And Christian, you're an expert in the space with passion for teaching, coaching, and mentoring business leaders wanting to improve their skills within FP&A. And I'm really looking forward to learning from you today. So let's get started. First, and as always, let's start with you and your journey and how you got to where you are today.
1: Sure. So I, the first half of my career, the first seven years was in consumer goods. Um, That's where, where I originally started. I started at Procter & Gamble in Switzerland. Originally, I'm from Germany, and that's where I grew up. Um, large multinational consumer goods company, uh, but working there, I knew eventually I would want to end up in the U.S. because my fiance at the time is from from the states, and you know, so I I was you know already plotting a way of changing changing jobs and moving to the to the to the U.S. And so, after four years, I thought the time's right. I quit my job. I came over here really without anything. You know, I didn't have much uh, furniture or really possessions back then, so that 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 was fine. But I was incredibly lucky to get a role, you know, shortly after at Unilever. Unilever is another large consumer goods company. you may you may know them from brands like um, Magnum and Briars and Dove. And I did a number of different FP&A roles there. Um, promoted a few times as well into leadership roles. And after my t- and uh, um, sometime um, uh, later, I-, I spent about seven years at Unilever. Then I took my MBA. <clears throat> and during during the MBA, I talked to people who worked in in tech and at fast-growing companies. And what they told me is that decision making happens a lot faster than in these you know large traditional companies. And so I was really interested about that. and uh, yeah, that's where I ended up after my MBA. First, I worked at Squarespace, led the FPNA team there, it's a website builder company. It was super exciting because we went public while I was there, and uh, then I moved to Data Rails, which is an FP&A software company. That's where I am now, and I have to say that what it told me is is true. You know, decision making is a lot faster when you're working at a at a smaller company, especially in tech where things are are changing very fast. Yeah, and yeah, I was I was I was happy with that decision because. The faster things change, the more I was able to learn.
0: And have you always had a passion for financial planning and analysis? Is that an area you've always known you wanted to get into?
1: Yeah. So um in undergrad, I realized that what's what what I what I really enjoy about FPA and why I wanted to get into it is this combination of on the one hand, puzzle solving, essentially, right? Uh, Digging into the numbers, figuring out what the connections are, figuring out, okay, what are the numbers really telling us? What's the story behind the numbers? That's one side of it, the puzzle solving piece. And the other side is the uh, almost psychology piece, right? Taking that information, um, packaging it in a way that people without a technical background understand it. And um hopefully encouraging other leaders to take action on it, right? Because that's the ultimate goal is to uh, discover insights in the data that then result in the company, you know, making use of that and taking action on it. So I always enjoyed that. It's this combination of um, getting into the numbers, doing analysis, but then also working closely with other teams, with people and having that close partnership, um, and uh, that's what interested me about f p and a. And you know that's why i I stick with it for so long, and you made the move
0: from being a finance leader to teaching finance leadership. So what inspired that move?
1: yeah. so when um when when I first got promoted to a leadership role, I realized that what I enjoyed most is teaching and coaching my my direct reports. You know, I really enjoyed it when um, there was something that I knew that would make their life easier and that would help them, you know, work more efficiently and have, have better results in, in their careers. And uh, I was fortunate that Unilever offered me to lead the learning and development team there, you know, the finance learning and development team. I did it on the side um, while I was working in an FP&A role. And uh, there, I had the chance to create courses for my fellow finance colleagues. Unilever has a large finance team in North America. There are about 150 finance people. And I realized that I enjoy creating curriculum too. And so a few years later, I had the chance to take a course. So there's this startup called Maven. Um, They teach subject matter experts like me how to turn the knowledge into a live online course. And then they offer also the software and, you know, you know make that happen. And they taught me how to design a, a course. And uh, the end result of that is FP&A Bootcamp. You know, my course where I teach finance teams and business leaders fp skills like financial storytelling, business partnering, forecasting. And yeah, I do that live over Zoom because I really enjoy the interaction with people and, you know, seeing how how it helps them.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. Um, Maven, huh?
1: Yeah, they're great. I'm really happy I stumbled uh, uh, into that uh, about a year and a half ago.
0: So today you're the head of FP&A training at Data Rails. So tell us what a day in your life looks like.
1: Yeah, so I was fortunate to get got the chance to move also closer to, to training in my, call it day job, right? So at, at, at Data Rails, I'm the head of fp training and the role really has two aspects. The first one is training our clients on how to enhance and automate their FP&A process using the Data Rails software. And currently I'm working on a certificate course where clients can go through you know step by step instructions and then get hands-on experience through guided exercises so first part the second part is training my colleagues inside of the company on f p a best practices you know so they can pass it on to to their clients and what i what i why I'm really excited about this is that you know how I, I feel I have these different areas that uh, I've done for a long time that I'm really interested in, you know, FP&A, of course, uh, teaching, but then also process automation, you know, and helping people automate and getting out of manual work. And I feel like in this role, they're all, those those circles overlap, you know, and, and doing that is really rewarding for me. And it's also a great... um Synergy with the work that I'm doing on my own company, you know, for, for FPNA bootcamp. So, yeah, that's how I ended up there.
0: So, is there anything you miss about leading, implementing, and practicing FPNA as opposed to training people?
1: Yeah, you know, I had a chance to train close to two hundred finance professionals with FP&A bootcamp this year. Wow and the, imp- the, the 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 thank you the impact I have with that is definitely greater than if I had just focused continued to focus on leading one FP&A team in one company. Um, that said, you know I may take on some consulting work in the future if I feel the urge to get back into FP&A directly. I'm and, and I'm sure that that will it will happen soon, and then I'm happy to do more more consulting there.
0: And let's talk about FP&A bootcamp. And maybe you've already touched on this, but tell us about why you decided to start your own company alongside your full time role.
1: Yeah. So when I moved from you know, long career in consumer goods into the world of fast moving tech companies, at first I was a bit concerned about, okay, will this, will my skills be transferable, right? Will what I learned um, at large multinational companies work at small startups? And will it work in an industry that's completely different, right? Moving from physical products that you have to produce and store and ship to software, which, you know, can create it immediately. And uh, especially software as a service, which is the whole different business model. Um, but when I started the role at Squarespace, I realized that almost everything I learned over the years is transferable because the challenges that fp teal teams deal with are the same. You know, how do you improve your forecast accuracy while, you know, environments are, are changing? Or how do you get information from your cross-functional business partners sooner, so you can do more with the data. you know these these kinds of challenges are were the same, no matter what the industry is. And at the same time, I realized that learning fP and a is difficult if you don't have great mentors, you know, like I had, because the universities don't do a great job at it. Yeah. And most companies, they don't they have training programs, you know for. Covering you know lots of general topics, but very few companies have their own training program for FPNA because it's usually such a small team. And so I thought, oh wow, there really seems to be a, a gap in the market, and it's something that I enjoy uh, doing. You know, teaching FPNA, and so why not go out and and create a company and uh, a, a course around that?
0: And who's your ideal client, and how do they find you?
1: Yeah, so. Going into this, I, my original assumption before I you know started doing it was that probably most people would be um, junior financial analysts at large companies. But actually, about 70% of my students are senior managers, directors, and above at small companies. And they take the course because they don't know what they don't know. Right, And you you can't Google that. you you because um, FpNA is such a broad field, touches so many different aspects, both on the technical side and on the soft skill side. And they take the course to see what how other companies are approaching the things that they're approaching, and maybe also what are some best practices. And um, how they find me. So I'm fortunate that actually my my website ranks pretty high on Google. And also the Maven platform brings a lot of people. I'm almost not spending anything on, on ads, um, but I am posting frequently on LinkedIn, you know, because um, it's also important to me that I share some of what I learned free of charge because not everyone can afford or not everyone has a company that has a learning and development budget that, that pays for the course. And so I'm also sharing a lot on LinkedIn. And that's that's where people find me as well.
0: It would be great if we could just Google what what don't I know that I need to, <laughs> maybe yeah, someday.
1: Right. <laughs> right.
0: Um, so, what's the first thing you teach your clients about FP&A?
1: Yeah. So I always start. I always start with teaching them how to separate real insights from raw data, because to me, that's really at the heart of any FP&A role. You know, it doesn't matter what your focus is, and the importance of separating insights from di- from raw data continues to grow, especially in these times, because finance teams develop their digital capabilities, they get better tools, they have more access to real-time data, and they need to learn how to manage that and how to not drown in data. And so, in the first workshop of FPNA Bootcamp, we go over real life examples of what great root cause analysis looks like. You know, a root cause is the ultimate reason for why you see a variance between forecasts and actuals, for example. And we talk about how you know that you've done enough digging to understand what's the story behind the numbers and how to get there.
0: Yeah, that's great. I imagine a lot of people do drown in an ocean of data yeah, so much available these days, yes. Yes. So what are the essential skills of financial planning and analysis? what What is it that a good FP and A expert possesses?
1: Yeah. so I group financial planning and analysis skills into four areas. The first one is financial storytelling so that's that's telling a story of the business by identifying insights, making clear recommendations, which then helps with strategy settings and 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 highlighting changes in trends and metrics before it uh, results before while you can still do something right early enough. that's financial storytelling the other the second aspect, the second grouping of skills is business partnering, right because um so much of what we So much of the impact that uh, a finance professional or finance leader has depends on others taking action on, on what we're recommending, right? So I have an entire workshop focused on how do you get a seat at the table where decisions are made? How do you build your relationships with your business partners? And how do you do things like managing budgets without being seen as the the budget police, right? Who always says no to everything. And we also touch a bit about influencing and, and, and that brings it all together. The third aspect is financial modeling. So that's how do you make decisions about investments? So how do you determine whether um, an investment is going to make sense? You look at different types of financial models, when do you use which model? Because this is something that is often over-engineered. You know, people build a model that's so complex that others can't can't understand it. And if they're being asked to run a sensitivity, it may take them two hours, right? And that's really not the goal. So I focus on building financial models that are uh, optimized for fast iteration. So you can stay on top of things and ideally give a response in the middle of a meeting. And the final aspect is, of course, financial planning and forecasting. So how do you design a financial planning process so that's not just about the numbers because the numbers will get outdated you know latest a few months later so it's about how do you create the process to get people to take a step back to really reevaluate are our strategies working how do we translate them to action plans and then how do we measure those action plans and how do we do that in a way that we can learn something from from the differences there and we also talk about forecasting techniques and a bit about machine learning as well, because that's um, that's one of the big aspects there. Yeah. So that's yeah. How, I would, how I would break up FPNA.
0: Yeah. Sounds like very valuable courses that any finance professional could benefit from. Thank you. Yeah. So I imagine you've met a lot of CFOs in your line of work. So do you have an opinion as to what makes a great CFO?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So to me, it's really four things. So... Financial storytelling and business partnering, as I just mentioned, are important skills for any finance leader, especially the CFO, because the CFO needs to is is essentially the face of the company towards investors together with the CEO. And they need to be able to understand not just how the the, the finances work, of course, and what the finance team does, but they need to be able to look further than that and understand all the key business drivers of the business and how those strategies translate into action plans to be able to tell the complete story. So business partnering and financial storytelling for CFOs, in my opinion, is are, are closely interwoven. You can't really do one thing without the other because to get a complete story, you need to have those relationships with the other executives to really understand, you know, how the business works. And on top of that, process is incredibly important for for CFOs to focus on because change is a constant in today's environment and great CFOs, in my opinion, need to lead it. They need to be in front of it. So they're not always playing, catching up with what the competition does. And that's especially important when it comes to process um, because then, if you, if that's top of mind, you can continually think about okay, how do I do I raise effectiveness and efficiency by trying to do things differently, or maybe by bringing in different tools and always staying on top of that. And related to process, I would I would move, put financial controls underneath that. That's of course no bread and butter of of any CFO, to so make sure that. All of these changes and efficiency improvements don't come at the cost of fiduciary discipline, risk management, and, and financial controls. And the final aspect is leadership, right? So successful CFOs need to be inspiring leaders. The finance team looks up to them, but really the entire company should see them as, um, as an inspiring leader. That They need to have their people's back, help them remove blockers. And at the same time, being crystal clear about expectations, goals, and the direction everyone is heading in. So those four areas is really where great CFOs, they they there are don't just master one or two of them. they excel in in all four to, and then they become a well-rounded CFO in my in my opinion. And you mentioned your
0: course covers this, but how can CFOs ensure that they have a seat at the table when those
1: big strategy decisions come around? Yeah, we cover that in the course, but I can talk a bit more about that. So the only way to have influence and get a seat at the decision table is through building trust, I would argue. If cross-functional business partners don't trust you, then they won't share information early enough when big decisions need to be made. And then we're just, you know, always a step behind. They um, that's because you know they may fear that finance will immediately cut their funding. For instance, if one of the initiatives appears to have a slow start, because if we're not careful, that's the impression that they may have of finance, right? Is that we're the ones who are always uh, focusing on the bottom line and you know cutting costs, etc. And so CFOs need to build the trust by showing that they can do more than managing budgets and updates for updating forecasts, right? They need to show they understand everyone's goals and challenges and that they can make suggestions, of course, rooted in financial analysis, but suggestions that don't just uh, say no to things, but that help the other leaders reach their goal. And then once trust is achieved, there's this flywheel of effective business partnering. So trust leads to improved relationships with cross-functional leaders that in turn results in more collaboration and information sharing. And then CFOs can use that information to make concrete recommendations about how to help the company reach their goal. And that then has, brings positive change, which will bring more trust, which then makes the whole flywheel turn faster. So that's a framework we explore more deeply in the course as well. Yeah. And the most important thing with all of that is that the starting point to getting a seat at the decision table is trust. You know, that's where where people need to focus on first to, to make anything happen.
0: And we touched on this a bit with all of the data available and <laughs> boiling the ocean, but But how can CFOs or finance leads avoid getting bogged down in the numbers?
1: Yeah, that's something that can happen easily nowadays as more and more data becomes available. And so really finance leaders need to become masters at filtering, essentially. And to do that, it's it's really important to remember to take a step back because things there's always fires to 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 focus on. There's always things that appear urgent. But if we always go after all the next urgent thing, then we may never really step back and look at, okay, does it even make sense what we're looking at? And if CFO's finance teams do that, they'll then also realize that we shouldn't just focus on financial metrics that have a dollar sign attached, right? Um, We also need to look at non-financial metrics, operational metrics, because they can often be a leading indicator. So a metric that tells us something about the future of the business. You know, for example... Our um the number of calls to our support hotline may tell us something about quality issues in the product that maybe don't yet show up as a dip in revenue but might in the future. And doing that, I know it may sound like, okay, now they need to look at even more numbers. But by doing that, it can free up some some space to step back more and to evaluate more because we can spot issues before they become fires and address them earlier on.
0: And what advice do you give on FP&A reporting?
1: So to me, the ultimate goal of FP&A reporting is making recommendations about how to improve the company performance. And I touched on this already a little bit, but the difference between best in class and mediocre FP&A reporting really comes down to great reporting surfaces real insights and mediocre reporting merely highlights data points right and a real insight identifies the root cause and i can actually give i'm happy to share uh, a rule of thumb that i use and that I, that i teach to help people know when they found a real insight a real root cause um and when they know okay now i have it now i can stop digging and that rule of thumb is, you reach the point where you have an insight when it clearly suggests one or maybe two actions. So let me give you an example. We missed the revenue target because of lower sales of product X. That's not a real insight. That's not a root cause. Why? Because there are a million things the company could possibly do to improve sales of product X, right? It's not really pointing to anything. But if you if you figure out that the website converted fewer leads to sales of product X, now we have a root cause. Now we have a real insight because an action becomes immediately apparent. Well, if I know that the website converted fewer leads, which resulted in lower sales, then I should probably start by reviewing each aspect of my website and looking to improve click-through rates and conversion rates. So. My number one advice for making more impactful FP&A reports is don't stop digging until you have found the root cause, which you know you have when you can point to a specific action that the company should take.
0: That's great advice. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm just curious, once you set that report on someone's desk, how do you encourage them to take action?
1: Mm, yeah. So... It's not enough to, even if you, usually, even if you have great insights, it's not enough just to email out the report and then hope for the best. Um, what I found is many, many FP&A teams have a check-in, have a review meeting after the month and close, you know, at the at the end of the period, either monthly or, or quarterly. But then there's, you, you're just talking about the past or maybe, you know, some forecast updates, but it's very high level. What I what I recommend is having more frequent review meetings, maybe even on a weekly basis. And I'm not saying that finance teams should update their forecast on a weekly basis. That would be, you know, overkill. But what people can do is mathematically calculate, you know, how are we tracking for the month? You're not really doing much. You're just setting up a formula and then meeting with the team and Discussing, okay, here here's how we're tracking from a financials point of view. Now, what does this mean? What does that mean to the business? And I learned that frequency really matters. If you're trying to do that only once a quarter or even just once a month, it's not enough time to really build the trust, build the relationships, show that you can do more than 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 doing you know standard reporting. But if you, if you meet weekly with your cross-functional team, that's really where you can start to make the, make the magic happen and see how the company acts on your recommendations.
0: And you've worked at multinational companies like Unilever and Procter & Gamble and also fast-growing tech companies like Squarespace and Data Rails. You touched on how they're the same, but how does the role of finance leader change between the two?
1: Yeah, so a big difference is that when you work for a large company, finance roles tend to be fairly specialized. So you may be responsible just for one aspect of the income statement, you know, for example, marketing expenses or sales expenses, R&D expenses. And you are focused on that and you you need to develop a lot of depth in that field because, you know, it's expected that you don't just know the numbers, you also know the business side of things um that's the same in a small company you also know need to know the business side of things but you need to be it's much more you need to be much more of a generalist because most likely you'll be responsible for an entire p l you now from sales all the way down to profit and which means that you it's harder to be an expert in in any one area but you need to learn enough, about all the different business drivers that are impacting your business, so you need more breath. And they, the, the advice that I give people there is just talk to your business partners more frequently and ask a lot of questions. And then people sometimes come back to me and say, "Hey, but if I ask them a lot of questions, am I just not? Is, isn't that selfish? Am I not just bothering them and taking time away from 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 their work?" But actually, if you're asking questions the right way, if you're asking them in a way that gets people to think outside the box, you're actually helping. You're actually helping them with asking the questions and it's not selfish. So yeah, that's how I would approach that.
0: And what advice do you have for aspiring CFOs or finance leads out there listening today?
1: So uh, let me tell a a quick story there. So the best advice that, that... I got in my career was um, relatively early in my career where I was working in an fp a role, partnering with a sales team. <clears throat> and the sales, we, so, so I was working hard, you know, it was pretty early in my role. I was still learning. And, uh, you know, one day I was, I was laid at my desk, head down, working on a spreadsheet when the VP of sales, you know, the most senior executive in the, in the office walked over to my desk. It was already after, you know, six PM. Most people were already gone, including my boss and his boss. And I was a bit concerned when he started to walk over to me because he, um, I, I was concerned it would mean that I forgot to send him something. He needs it urgently, and I, I may not know how to get it done quickly because everyone else had already left the office. And uh, so he walked over to my desk. When he was there, I immediately noticed, you know, it, it, it wasn't anything like that. He was super nice. He asked about how I'm doing. And he said, Look, I know you're working very hard, but understand that it's a process. Whenever you step out of your outside of your comfort zone, your comfort zone grows. And it didn't fully register with me at first. You know, it took some time for, for it to sink in for, for me really to think it through. But what he was talking about is growth mindset, right? The idea that when you do things that seem very challenging, you know, like presenting ocean of numbers in front of people who know them better than me, Um, it seems challenging at first, but once you keep doing it, all of a sudden you get comfortable doing it, your comfort zone grows, and you have more capacity doing things, you know, that you you felt uh, impossible before. And that stuck with me over the years, and that's something that I keep getting back to, it's something that was really helpful when I was promoted into more senior roles, and something that you know I would also give as advice to people who are uh, about to take on their first CFO role or or senior leadership role, is that just take it step by step. Uh, don't be shy about going out there and, and doing things that you've never done before because that's how your comfort zone grows.
0: Yeah, great advice. Thank you. So lastly, as an FPNA expert, what's keeping you up at night these days?
1: Yeah, so right now, of course, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, concern out there about the recession and what a broader recession, what the impact may have on everyone's business. And um what keeps me up at night about that is that it may some companies may make the decision to slow down skill acquisition in corporate finance, right? Or maybe slash their learning and development budgets. And I hope that finance leaders realize that many of the challenges they're facing aren't unique, you know, especially in a, in a, in, in, in a downturn. And other finance teams also struggle with them, you know, like declining forecast accuracy when the speed of change increases lower cross-functional cooperation because department leaders fear budget cuts or even risk of burnout because a reduced workforce has to struggle through avoidable manual work. And, you know, other companies share these uh, issues and there are solutions for all of these challenges. And so, yeah, I hope that CFOs keep in mind that they don't need to reinvent the wheel when courses like mine and others, you know, exist that they can help them, that they can use to address them uh, efficiently and quickly.
0: Yeah. I have a quick question about your course. Is it on like a set timeline? Like it starts on January 1st every year, or is it on like someone's own timeline?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So it's four workshops, four workshops we Zoom over two weeks. So Tuesday, Thursday, Tuesday, Thursday, and I run the course about every two months. So the next, so uh, I run one in the middle of January, and then the next one will probably take place in uh, the second half of March.
0: It's good to know, Christian. Thank you so much for being my guest today.
1: Thank you for having me, Megan. It was a great conversation, great questions. And yeah, thanks so much.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed speaking with you and hearing about your experiences and all of the resulting insights. And I wish you the best. It sounds like you're doing some really amazing things.
1: Thank you. Same to you.
0: And to all of our listeners, please tune in next week. And until then, take care. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personev. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades. Partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personev can do for you by visiting
1: personev.com.
0: You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personev. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes.